0: Good morning! Welcome to Praying the Psalms, a daily podcast by Doxa Church in Madison, Wisconsin. As a church finds itself isolated from one another physically, we are reading, studying, and praying the psalms together each morning as a way to join ourselves together spiritually. We want to slow down, get a bigger picture of God, and hopefully a more clear picture of ourselves. Most of all, though, we want to join ourselves together around the throne of the one who has joined himself to us. So, if you haven't already, grab a Bible and spend some time prayerfully reading Psalm 80. Which is described as the testimony of asaph it is a cry for god's help and was likely written after the ten northern tribes of israel were taken captive leaving the people to feel tempted to feel hopeless it says give ear o shepherd of israel you who lead joseph like a flock you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before ephraim and benjamin and manasseh stir up your might and come to save us restore us o god let your face shine that we may be saved O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land." The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the sun whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. As we begin reading, we see Asaph almost instructing God to intervene. God's character is described as the ultimate shepherd and all-powerful leader, and Asaph knows he is the ultimate one worthy of worship, enthroned above the cherubim. As mentioned last week with Psalm 75, Asaph was the director of the Tabernacle Choir, who would have been very familiar with the Ark of the Covenant that had two cherubim resting on it. As a worship leader, much of Asaph's life would have consisted of worship, and we can learn from his example on what our own lives of worship can and should look like. Israel's struggles that Asaph is describing in this chapter likely resulted from their own misplaced worship that led to their eventual captivity. As we read the Old Testament, we repeatedly see Israel choose to do their own thing, worship their own gods, and demand their own way, and the result isn't pretty. All of life is worship, and it ultimately comes down to us worshiping either ourselves or God. As someone who struggled with people-pleasing throughout much of my own life, mostly manifested by a misplaced desire for people's approval, I used to think that I, at times, worshipped people rather than God. Well, about seven years ago, one of the Iowa State College students who I'd grown to love ended up gently calling me out on that while challenging me that ultimately my desire to please people, or gain their approval, was actually just self-worship. I only wanted their approval because of what I could get out of them, not in any way to benefit them or make their lives better. That was convicting and helped lead me to repentance. As I've been reading throughout the Old Testament the past few weeks, I keep seeing countless examples of misplaced worship. It's so easy to read about Israel's journey and wonder why they so blatantly did the opposite of what God desired of them, in spite of them consistently witnessing life-changing, awe-inspiring demonstrations of God's love and power, yet my life is at times so similar to theirs'. Earlier today, I was struck by what the prophet Jeremiah says to the people of Israel in Jeremiah 2:11 through 13 when he says, "'Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate,' declares the Lord. "'For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water.'" Asaph knew that Israel desperately needed God's grace in the midst of their captivity as he pleads with God to restore them and shine his face upon them by his grace so that they will be saved. We learn in verse 4 that God is angry with the prayers of his people. Hmm. Have you ever sensed God being angry with your prayers? It's not a concept that we read about a lot in the Bible. If so, what could be the reason? What do you think was the reason God may have been angry with Israel's prayers? Asaph describes God as having fed Israel with tears and given them tears in large measure to drink, along with telling him that he feels God has made Israel an object of contention to their neighbors and a laughingstock to their enemies. Then he once again pleads for restoration and God's salvation as Asaph recounts Israel's history. Following that, yet again, Asaph pleads with God to turn to his people, restore them, and revive them, and he promises that the people will call on his name if he will do just that. As we see throughout much of the Old Testament, God once again invites his people to repent in Jeremiah 3:12-15. God instructs Jeremiah to tell Israel, "Return, O faithless Israel," declares the Lord. "I will not look upon you in anger, for I am a gracious. I for I am gracious," declares the Lord. "I will not be angry forever." Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Uh, Sounds a little different than the feeding on tears that we read about earlier. Then in verse 22, we see God telling Israel to return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Asaph clearly knows God's character to be that of a forgiving father and merciful shepherd. We see throughout the Old Testament Israel's pattern of disobedience, thinking they knew better than God, running to other idols in hopes of being saved, sometimes repenting and trying to find satisfaction in almost everything but in the one who truly satisfies, whose arms are held out to them over and over again, ready to forgive and restore. In this psalm, we also see Asaph crying out to God for national restoration. I love how we can personalize the psalms to specific areas of struggle in our own lives and was personally challenged to cry out to God on behalf of our nation while reading this. Just like Asaph, we too get to cry out to a God who is shepherd, the best leader imaginable, worthy of all of our worship, mighty, able to save, and able to restore. Yet I think that we, like the people of Israel, have a fair amount of misplaced worship in this country. As you read throughout the Old Testament, look for things Israel placed their hope in as the objects of their worship. Note how it worked out for them. Not so great most of the time. Sometimes they did repent and worship the one worthy of all worship, and yet it was so easy for them, just like us, to quickly run back to other things that are broken cisterns, as Jeremiah describes. What broken cisterns have you placed your hope in in the past? And are you placing your hope and affections on any of those things right now? Some of the ones I can be tempted to place my hope in include an easy life. Comfort, a home, a car, savings in the bank, people's approval, success, relationships, freedom from pain or problems, freedom from fear and anxiety, the myth of control, my health, sleep, and other things. We see in our culture a misplaced worship in money, success, sex, drugs, alcohol, relationship status, and the like. Some of those are really great gifts God sometimes chooses to give, but they're not the be-all, end-all. Those who rest in him as the all powerful shepherd and the only one truly able to save and restore will not be disappointed. He is the fountain of living water in which no broken cisterns will ever be found. Let's be like Asaph and cry out to him to do what only he can do as our mighty shepherd. Let's also reflect on whether or not there's any misplaced worship in our own lives or that of our nation and plead with God to lead us to repentance where needed and enjoy a life filled with worship of the only one who truly satisfies. Take time today. And each day, to meditate on who God is, along with all the incredible things you've seen Him do and read about Him doing in the Bible, spend time today in pure gratitude and worship. Try spending a few minutes in prayer, not asking Him for anything, but instead just spending time thanking Him for all He's done, especially offering Jesus to die in our place for our sin and conquering sin and death by raising Him from the dead. When our lives are filled with gratitude and true worship, there's not as much room for sin, complaining, selfishness, worry— anxiety, and fear. Instead, we'll be more naturally led to selflessly love and serve God and others. What a gift. Please pray with me. Father, I, um, yeah, I'm so thankful for just the ways you've let your spirit convict me through um, both Asaph and Psalm 80 and even just Jeremiah and the example of the people of Israel. God, um, yeah, thank you just for the fact that you are so often visualized throughout scripture with your arms just open wide, just ready to forgive and restore. And I just even envision the, um, father in the story of the prodigal son that just was looking and waiting for his son to return and repent. And God, I, um, yeah, just ask that we would be people that are, um, just seeing if there is any misplaced worship in our own hearts. But God, would we just so much more often than we do just be full of gratitude and spend time every day in prayer, not just asking you for things, but just thanking you for all that you are and all that you already have done. And also just worshiping you because of the just, yeah, incredible depth of your character. And so God, yeah, we love you and want to be people full of worship. Um, Yeah, please do only you can do in our country. We pray that you would just lead our country and just millions of people to repentance Lord. throughout. um, Yeah. So many challenges that um, the people that we love here are facing and God, yeah, we just want to be a picture of Jesus to them. Thank you for all you do in Jesus name. Amen. Welcome to praying the Psalms, a daily podcast by Doxa church in Madison, Wisconsin. As the church finds itself isolated from one another physically, we are reading, studying, and praying the Psalms together each morning as a way to join ourselves together spiritually. We want to slow down, get a bigger picture of God and hopefully a more clear picture of ourselves. Most of all though, we want to join ourselves together around the throne of the one who has joined himself to us. So if you haven't had a chance, grab a Bible and spend some time prayerfully reading Psalm 85. The the title of Psalm 85 is Revive Us Again. Sounds like a hymn, right? Yet the title alone gives us a glimpse into Israel's understanding of God's character and how he may want to encourage us as we pray through this psalm today. I'm not sure what comes to mind for you when you think of the word revive, but for me, words like, Amelie, take over compressions, along with memories of the biggest adrenaline rush you can imagine, mixed with one of the worst feelings you can experience, can flash before my eyes in an instant. If you're wondering why horrible feelings can come to mind for me, cold blues could at times result in someone I got to care for, no matter how short or long, stepping into a Christless eternity if they didn't know Christ as Savior and if we were not able to revive them. Thankfully, though, we serve a God who is always more than capable of reviving, whether in a physical, relational, or spiritual sense. Today, we get to prayerfully read about the sons of Korah pleading with God to revive and restore them to the favor that they previously experienced from and with Him. As we read, note how many times the word us is mentioned as the people of Israel collectively reflect on what God had previously done, as they ask him to extend his mercy rather than his anger, and as in expectant faith they ask him to tangibly show his love to them once again, just as he had done in the past. This psalm was likely written after Israel had been taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. Check out Jeremiah 29 to learn more. While in captivity, God's favor, love, joy, salvation, and glory were seemingly overshadowed and potentially even temporarily forgotten, and were instead replaced by evidence of His anger, indignation, justice, and punishment. Try to imagine being in Israel's pre-exilic state, one where God frequently communicates with you through the prophets whom He chose. You get to see unbelievable evidences of God's power, protection, and love, yet doing things your own way still seems like the better, more satisfying way of life. For decades, prophets warn you and plead with you to repent, but you're pretty content with things as they are. You just can't understand why this Jeremiah guy keeps talking about how God is a potter and you're supposed to be the clay. That makes no sense. No one should be able to control you and do what he wants with you. You're better, stronger, and smarter than that. Or are you? You can just deal with these crazy prophets by beating them, throwing them in a cistern, or imprisoning them. That should shut them up. Sin is fun, so why not continue in it? Pride leads you to think that you know better than God does. These prophets kept running their mouths, but you prefer the other prophets. Surely what they're telling you is true, is it just feels right. Plus, all this talk about captivity isn't even close to coming to fruition, until one day, seemingly out of nowhere, while you're just enjoying what feels like the good life, making fun of these crazy prophets, life is no longer the same for 70 long years of captivity. The things you've worked so hard for are just taken from you by evil people, and your whole family and nation are now enslaved. But you're above that. These kinds of things don't happen to you. A few months into captivity, you may recall many of the prophets pleading with you to repent and live for the one true God. Regret and remorse overwhelm you almost daily. Is there any hope? Maybe just a glimpse. The specific words of the prophets slowly keep coming back to mind. Maybe there was something to what they kept rambling on about. Did they say that we should seek the welfare of the city we're captive to and that we're supposed to pray for those people? Well, nothing else is working, so maybe you should give it a shot. Then you slowly begin to remember how great things really were when you obey God and listen to the prophets. Maybe God is who he says he is. Well, let's read Psalm 85 to see what Israel found to be true about God after seven long decades of being exiled and now finding themselves back in their homeland, which looked drastically different from what they had remembered. Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, Selah, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger, restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. I love that Israel, through their suffering, came to repentance and a deeper knowledge of God. We are naturally wired to desire an easy life and to believe that living our own way is the best option. Israel learned the hard way that this is not the case, and I hope we can learn from their example and more quickly take God at his word. He tells us about who he is and that the abundant life he came to bring us, through Jesus taking our place and punishment on the cross resulting in us truly surrendering our lives to him, That ultimately comes through obedience. When we choose a lifestyle of repentance, faith, and obedience, we experience God's favor. Not always in the ways we would choose, but a life filled with peace and joy comes out of that. Forgiveness and our sins being covered are also gifts God has given us. Verse 2 ends with, You covered all their sin, followed by the word "sela." Scholars differ in their understanding of the meaning of "sela." but I think we are wise to pause and reflect when we see this word anywhere in Scripture, as that is one of the potential meanings. Take time right now to pause and reflect on the statement, you have covered all their sin. That is an incredibly powerful statement that much of Israel learned to be true. Is it true for you? Have all your sins been covered? If so, how has that actually changed your life? If not, why not? I'd love to end today by just personally praying through the psalm and encourage you to do the same. Father, we truly need you to revive us just as you did Israel. We're so distracted and easily drawn away from you, convinced that we know best, and the other things satisfy more deeply than you do. You were favorable to your land before Israel's captivity and afterwards, and we have experienced your favor in so many ways that we can easily just brush past. What we are entitled to, God, is hell, and yet, because of Jesus, believers will never have to face that. You restored Israel's fortunes, and so many of us have experienced your restoration and provision. Would we take time to not quickly move past gratitude for all you've done? You forgave the iniquity of your people, Israel, and you've forgiven all of us who have truly turned from our sin and put all of our hope in Jesus. You covered all their sin and all of ours who are resting in Jesus alone. Would we truly pause and reflect on that every single day? There isn't a single sin that your death, Jesus, didn't atone for, for those who repent and believe. The offer of grace is It's just, yeah, hard to fathom, and it's unbelievable. Thanks, God, that it's free, but it's not cheap, and it actually should cost us everything. Would you help us to be open-handed with everything that you've given us, and would our lives reflect our deep gratitude for all of our sins being covered? You withdrew all your wrath from Israel and have withdrawn your wrath from so many of us who thought we knew better than you do. God, you turned turned from your hot anger. Just as Israel pleaded with you to restore them again and put away your indignation from them— Knowing that you are the God of their salvation, we too so desperately need your mercy to restore us. God, many areas in our culture don't reflect your mercy and faithfulness, and we deserve your anger. Thank you that for those who are in Christ, we know that you won't be angry with us forever, and that in heaven, Christ's followers will not experience even a second of your anger, in spite of deserving the full extent of it. Will you revive us again, that your people in Madison and across the globe may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation." We long to hear what you will speak, knowing that you can speak peace to your people, to your saints. We know this will be true in heaven, but are desperate for your peace now and ask that you prevent us from turning back to our folly. Surely, God, your salvation is near to those who fear you, that glory may dwell in our land. God, we really, truly want to fear you and experience your glory. Would you allow us to share with others the glimpses of your glory that we do experience? Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and and peace Kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. God, that's so cool. You just cover all the bases. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before you and make your footsteps away. Thank you that you do give what is good, and that you define good differently than we do. Father, we trust you and praise you for your love, faithfulness, righteousness, peace, and forgiving what is good. Would we delight in you above all, And would that result in others getting to experience those things as they spend time with us? We love you, God, but we want to grow to know and love you more. Please help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.